Hey, it's your friend Seth Harwood here, back with As Much Protein as an Egg, Episode 6. We're going to start off with Chapter 10 today, and we'll see how far we get. How have you been? How is your coronavirus life, COVID situation treating you these days? I can tell you for me, it has been an up and down ride, mostly down, some up, and crazy times. And last week I was starting to get sort of focused and settled, thinking that things were sort of getting normal. And then things have come unhinged, run amok. The world is crazy again, crazier, because on top of pandemic, it seems we have race rioting, uh, police killing, and a lot of crazy, crazy stuff out there. I was writing a book about uh, police in San Francisco um, and how hard it was for them to police people with everyone being upset that how hard it was for some police in San Francisco uh, with the larger idea that people were getting killed by police um, that was a book that I was writing that was kind of a Clara Donner sequel um, that I got a pretty good way into. Uh, it involved a guy who was killing homeless people. And um, yeah, it is summer, early summer 2020. 2020 is batshit crazy of a year. And maybe I'll start writing something new or I'll get back to that piece. We shall see. For now... I'm happy to be bringing you as much protein as an egg. I am happy to have content for you, and I appreciate you listening. Drop a line. I'd love to hear from you. So far, I've heard from maybe 10 or a dozen of y'all, and that's great. And I'd love to know that there's even more of you out there. Spread the word. Sign up on Patreon. Tell your friends. Get you to listen to some Maltese Jordans, or hell, buy a book. You can do that at SethHarwood.com, as always. <sighs> so I've got chapter 10 for you today, at least. I would like to have more content soon about the Michael Jordan uh, documentary that was on ESPN recently, The Last Dance how that connects to the Maltese Jordans, I'd be happy to talk about that. If you've got any questions about Jordan history or how anything from that doc connects to the Maltese Jordans, I'd love to hear it. They did actually talk to David Stern, former commissioner of the NBA, to ask him about the possible conspiracy theories around Jordan's first retirement, and he basically did everything he could to flatly deny them. But there's still some interesting things to think about with regard to the whole possibility of Jordan and how the Maltese Jordans may have come about. Fiction? Yes, it's fiction. And more on that later. Let's get into some as much protein as an egg. Chapter 10. Bainbridge McGee was pacing around his living room. 
He needed to share his news about receiving the Damon Knight Grand Master Award, but he didn't know whom he should call. All of his writer friends would tell him, fuck you, if he called them. They would be jealous. If he called Big Win or one of his golfer friends, they would say, what the fuck is that? He paced around. Above his mantle was a very large television that he had purchased at Best Buy. It measured 61 inches diagonally from its lower left corner to its upper right. Best Buy was like Costco, but they didn't sell toilet paper, underwear, pizza, or hot dogs. No peanut butter either. So why would you ever go there? Well, because Best Buy specialized in electronics. Big deal. On the upside, Best Buy never would have put Cherubin Kirkland's hardware store out of business. So it goes. If his father, Kilgore Trout, was still alive, Bainbridge McGee would have called him. Kilgore Trout would have been very happy for his only son. In 1978, Trout had won the Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award himself. His son had been very happy for him. He was 12 years old at the time. When his father won the award, he took McGee out to dinner at Red Lobster. Bainbridge McGee and his father both loved Red Lobster. It had the best seafood of any restaurant in Coho's, New York, which is where they lived at the time. Incidentally, Bainbridge McGee didn't know Kilgore Trout was his father until 1972. That was when Dwayne Hoover went amok in Midland City, bit off the topmost joint of Kilgore Trout's right ring finger, and Kurt Vonnegut himself appeared to Trout, introduced himself as his creator, and promised that henceforth Trout's books would have a reputable publisher. It took Trout eight months to recover from all of these events. But by then, he was a household name as a writer. Groupies were flocking to him everywhere, within reason, and his latest masterpiece landed on the shelves of supermarkets, which is the upper pantheon of where writers could ever hope for their work to appear. So he had a lot less to worry about then. And so on. It wasn't until 1974 that Bainbridge McGee's mother worked up the courage to confront his father, Kilgore Trout, eventually approaching him out of the woodwork at the A&P supermarket in Coho's, New York, three months after moving there herself with her young son, Bainbridge. They happened to be within 30 feet of a display shelf for Trout's novels when this confrontation happened. Trout had no idea that he'd had a son until he met Brainbridge McGee. Boy, was he lonely before that. Just him and his pet parakeet, Bill, and the groupies. But really, the groupies were never around Trout all that much. This is as good a time as any to point out that any sex-craving groupies coming after writers and showing up at readings is entirely a creation of this author and many other authors everywhere. It is completely a myth. It has always been a myth. If anything, a writer might have some chance to enjoy random sexual intercourse with another writer after a reading or at a writer's conference, but that's about it. And then both writers will feel shameful about it. Back in his living room in La Quinta, McGee stopped pacing. He knew exactly whom he should call. He was what he would call his friend Alan Rifle, who had won the award in 2007, 
the year that Kurt Vonnegut died. It really was a shame that Vonnegut hadn't won the award himself. Among all the science fiction authors McGee had ever read, he thought Vonnegut, he thought Vonnegut was the best. Most everybody agreed. McGee decided that once he was a Grand Master, he would nominate Vonnegut for the award. He would make sure the great Vonnegut got the recognition he deserved, even if it was six or seven or eight years too late. McGee pulled his smartphone out of his pocket. It was an iPhone made by Apple Computer. Even though McGee had a different kind of computer, he had an Apple iPhone. Everyone thought that Apple made the best phones, even if this wasn't true. Sanyo may have made the best phones, but it didn't matter. Nobody cared anymore. All anyone wanted was a new iPhone with the Wi-Fi and apps. Apple had done a good job of making new lies to convince everyone to buy their iPhones. Once he found Alan Rifle in his contacts list on his iPhone, McGee pushed the button to call him. He knew using a smartphone next to his head could cause brain cancer from radiation, but McGee held the phone to his head anyway and listened to the rings. Usually, McGee used a white, wired headset to talk on the phone, but right now he was too excited to find it, untangle the white cords, and put the sleek pieces into his ears. He heard the third ring. It was customary for people's phones to pick up with voicemail after the fifth or sixth ring. Voicemail was when your phone answered for you and took a message. In your voice, the phone told people that you were busy and couldn't get to it. Then it beeped, and the caller said their piece. A great majority of the time, the phone's owner was actually holding the phone and just didn't want to talk. It's the truth. Not that you should feel bad about this when you call someone. The simple fact was that nobody had ever wanted to be reachable by phone at all times. Now Alan Rifle's phone did not go to voicemail. The fact is, Alan Rifle used a landline and didn't have voicemail. A landline was like an AOL email account for your phone, except even older. Even worse, it was connected to your house with an actual wire. A cord. Alan Rifle answered. Hello, he said. Alan! McGee was both relieved and excited to have reached Alan Rifle. Famous as McGee was, Alan Rifle was even more famous, but he still couldn't afford to live beside a golf course. He lived in the Midwest, in Kansas. Hello? Hello, Alan? Yes? Alan, it's Bainbridge. Bainbridge McGee. How are you? McGee. Hello. Who is this? It's Bainbridge McGee. Oh, right. This was the downside of getting old. Sometimes you weren't so good at talking on the phone. And this was Rifle's landline. You should have heard him try to talk on a cell phone. Oh, jeez. Alan Rifle did in fact own a cell phone. It was not a smartphone. Oh, no. Not an iPhone or anything like that. It resembled a walkie-talkie. A walkie-talkie was what kids played with so they could hear each other from one room to another. The other people who used walkie-talkies were the police. McGee, what the hell is happening? Have you gotten off your ass already and written that novel? 
Ten years ago, McGee had told Rifle he was going to write the great American novel. He had actually already completed two of them then and was working on one more at the time. Rifle didn't believe him when McGee said this, even though McGee was actually right. Unfortunately, Rifle hadn't written any great American novels. He did write six scholarly books about science fiction and a lot of other stuff, that was well-regarded and really quite excellent, but he had never written any great American novels. Too bad for him. He had won the Grand Master Award, though, so he doesn't need your sympathy. Alan, McGee said, I think I got the email. What email? The email. When? Today? Yes, today. I just got it in my inbox. You're the only one I could think to call. Alan Rifle laughed. McGee could hear Rifle laughing through the phone. It didn't make him happy. What's funny, he asked. McGee, it's September, for heaven's sakes. They don't announce the winner of the Damon in September. That's in the spring. They probably just want you to be on the committee. What? Did you even read the email? Bainbridge McGee was rushing back to his computer to open the email. He hadn't read past the subject line. He was a writer. He never read things other than great works. Now he read the email. He saw that Alan Rifle was right. They were just asking him to be on the committee to decide who should get the next Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award. The award would be given out at the Nebula, Award- the Nebula Awards in May. The Nebula Awards were always in May. Shit, McGee said. McGee was deflated. Worse than deflated. He was definitely going to have to cancel his bender. He might even have to spend some time writing. Maybe, he thought, this was the rebirth of his idea about the people jumping from the World Trade Center towers. So it goes. Rifle laughed again. Now McGee wished he hadn't called. Are you on this year's committee? McGee asked. No, son, not this year. But I have been. It's a hell of a thankless job. But at least you don't have to read all the books they, like they make you do for the best novel, Nebula. Thank Christ, McGee said. People were all the time thanking Jesus Christ for things he had nothing to do with. Even someone like Bainbridge McGee, who didn't feel any particular way about religion at all, sometimes thanked him. Go figure. Jesus Christ had absolutely nothing to do with McGee not having to read a bunch of new novels and vote on the best of them. Well, good luck. This was what Alan Rifle said when he wanted to get off the phone. Wait, McGee said. He had an idea. Now that he was on the committee, maybe he could be of some use. What about Vonnegut? Why hasn't he ever won the award? Rifle said. The Grand Master Award? Kurt Vonnegut? Come on! My father won the award, and Vonnegut created him. How can Vonnegut not have won the award? Rifle was quiet for a moment. McGee thought he could guess what Rifle would say next. Well, Rifle said slowly, he did piss a lot of people off. Selling all those books, breaking genres, getting famous, acting all metafictional. He made us all look bad. So? Plus, he smoked so many damned Paul Mall cigarettes. What kind of a role model does that make for young writers?
Bainbridge McGee couldn't believe what he was hearing. He's the greatest author of our time, he said. This was one other thing that connected Artemis Kellogg and Bainbridge McGee. They both thought Kurt Vonnegut was the best American author ever. Me? I could use some convincing. A lot of people really think he's the bee's knees. Truth be told, I'm warming to the idea. It's just that I read a lot of his books a long time ago, and I'm only now revisiting them. They're actually pretty darn great. But there are a lot of great American authors. I'm just saying. Listen. I once met Kurt Vonnegut. Really. This part is actually true. I met him when he came to the University of Iowa, where I was a graduate student in creative writing in 2002. He gave a reading that filled the whole theater in the campus center. There was a long line of students lined up outside the building for hours waiting to get in. When they opened the doors, the students packed the theater. They took up every chair and sat in the aisles. More students stood in the back of the room. The campus center officials set up an overflow room with a TV in it. The TV showed the stage in the theater where Vonnegut would appear. The overflow room got to be about half full. There were more students who wanted to see Vonnegut, but really the overflow room wasn't all that exciting. They were sick of seeing things on TV. On the first floor of the campus center was a bar that had a TV too. The bar served beer. Sure, the TV set just showed sports on ESPN, not Vonnegut, but the beer more than made up for that. I didn't go to the auditorium to see him. Because Vonnegut had once taught in the famous writer's workshop at the University of Iowa, footnote, these are his words, not mine, incidentally. See Slaughterhouse-Five, page 23. The writer's workshop, which is the program I was in, he agreed to give a special talk to just a few of us students in the workshop who wanted to come and see the old man speak. We showed up in a common room in one of the campus buildings. It may have actually been a dorm. Everyone knew there was no smoking in all the campus buildings. We weren't sure if Vonnegut would know this or even care. When he arrived, Vonnegut sat down at a great table in the front of the room. He was a little man with large hair. His skin looked kind of gray, on account of all the cigarette smoking, I assume. He was quite impressive, really. He wore a blue blazer. From one pocket of the blazer, he took out a glass ashtray before he sat down. From the other pocket, he took out his red pack of Pall Mall cigarettes. He proceeded to light up and smoke. So it goes. He looked a lot more comfortable once he started smoking. This is all I remember about his talk. Sometimes he was funny. I remember that, too. Bainbridge McGee was still trying to convince Alan Rifle that Kurt Vonnegut was worthy of the Grand Master Award. I'm not even sure he's science fiction, Rifle said. What else would he be? He sure isn't fantasy. McGee was getting sick of Alan Rifle. How could the old man not think Vonnegut was worthy? Vonnegut was the best! Slaughterhouse-Five was ranked the 18th greatest English-language novel of the 20th century by Modern Library. Shit, McGee said. I'm going to convince the committee. After getting off the phone and calming down, Bainbridge McGee stood at his kitchen counter drinking ice water. 
There was no way he would let a stuffy old guy like Alan Rifle dissuade him from thinking Kurt Vonnegut should get the next Grand Master Award. He had decided. Chapter 11 Listen, Artemis Kellogg wanted to get laid, become a famous director, and make a lot of money. He wanted to write his screenplay. He was sick of teaching at the Waldorf School and spending his days asking kids, who really were very nice, to stop farting. Bainbridge McGee just wanted to play golf. He wanted that, to have sex, and to write one or two more great American novels. He also had a whole new mission in life. To make Kurt Vonnegut the next Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master. The three big questions now are... A. Will Kellogg get laid? B. Will McGee be able to help Vonnegut get the award? And C. Will he ever write his great novel about people falling out of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Suspense! Emily Plinko wanted to make it in the big city. Sure, she wasn't going to start a Costco, a Microsoft, a Facebook, or Apple, or anything like that. She had graduated college. In fact, in 18 months, Eat24.com wouldn't even exist. It would be long gone. By the standards of Mankato, Minnesota, though, she was making it in San Francisco. She had a good job, could eat out whenever she wanted, and had her own apartment. She was doing well. Now she wanted a nice, solid boyfriend. He should be respectable, kind, intelligent, and he should have his heart in the right place. If he was all these things, she could take him home to Mankato, and she would be a success. Emily Plinko didn't even know she wanted these things. If you asked her, she'd say she just wanted to be happy. She really hadn't spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that meant. Oh well. Isn't it funny that none of these characters have washboard abs or want washboard abs? What's funniest about it is they all really do want their middle to look like a washboard. They're just not motivated enough to try. I'm going to give Emily Plinko washboard abs. There. I just did it. Man, is she even more attractive now. She didn't even have to work hard for them. Maybe she'll write a magazine article about how she did it. Artemis Kellogg just started sweating. A funny thing. In 1979, when Kilgore Trout accepted the Nobel Prize for Medicine, he declared in his acceptance speech that he had known two monsters that inhabited people's heads. They were the lust for gold and for a glimpse of a little girl's underpants. Footnote. See Breakfast of Champions, page 25. The lust for a glimpse of a little girl's underpants. Vonnegut even drew a picture of these underpants in his book. The funny thing is how big these underpants were by today's standards. Today, people would call those granny panties, presumably because they're the kind their grandmothers wore. Man had underpants gotten smaller and less comfortable. When Emily Plinko was sitting in the cafe across from Artemis Kellogg, she was wearing underpants that were called a thong. Thong underpants were made from a thin strap that went between your buttocks and connected to a small patch of fabric that covered your vagina. 
This contraption was held up by a band around your waist. Uh-oh, things are going to get a little crazy here. The daughter, my daughter, has just come home. She's seven years old. This is the present, 2020. Seth Harwood, back in your ear. Not the fictional author, Phil Boyd Studge the Third. In any case, we'll see what I can get finished up for today and then sign off before things go crazy. A thong underpants was held up by a band around your waist. Sometimes this band would stick out the back of a girl's jeans. This was because their jeans were low-rise. If a thong was sticking up above a girl's jeans, people would call this a whale tail. Boys and men thought this was unbearably sexy. They couldn't stop thinking about it if they saw a whale tail. They could barely control themselves. Though Emily com- Though Emily Plinko was wearing a thong, she did not have a whale tail. Her thong was securely tucked down into her stretch pants. Can I buy you a coffee? Artemis Kellogg asked Emily Plinko. He could see she already had an empty coffee cup in front of her. No, thank you. Artemis Kellogg was nervous now. He could feel sweat on his brow. Maybe it was the coffee, or maybe it was Emily Plinko's washboard abs, and the idea she might be wearing a small, skin-colored thong. Was she? Yes, she was. Kellogg looked at his wrist. He wasn't wearing a watch. He never wore a watch anymore, not since he got an iPhone. Sure, telling time was another one of the things that any smartphone could do. Footnote, Steve Jobs or the Apple Computer Company fixed this when they introduced Apple Watch in 2015 to interface with your iPhone. What time is it? Emily Plinko looked at her smartphone. She said, It's 1037. Why? Have you ever had the egg sandwich here? They steam the eggs. It's really weird, but they're wonderful. You should try one. That sounds kind of good, actually, Emily Plinko said. Then Kellogg said the smartest thing he'd said all day. It was, Can I buy you an egg sandwich? Emily Plinko said, Only if we can share. Artemis Kellogg suddenly got excited. And that's the end of chapter 11, which really is very good, because now the child that this book is dedicated to, Willa Evelyn Harwood, has just arrived in the basement to interrupt my recording session. Would you like to say hello, Willa? Yeah. Would you like to say anything else? Can we do a video? Aha! Willa is saying that she would like to make Portuguese sweetbread again. You might remember from one of the last episodes, episode four, I believe, that we were making Portuguese sweetbread. That was on a Sunday. Today is a Monday, and we haven't made Portuguese sweetbread since. But Willa's mother, my wife, has made several loaves of sourdough bread, and we've bought some lovely loaves of bread from local bakeries. We currently have two lovely loaves of bread upstairs, so I don't think today is a good day for making Portuguese sweetbread. 
Willa is curled up in a blanket. Willa did not watch the Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, although she did watch parts of it. Maybe we will watch it soon one day. We have been watching the original three Star Wars movies. No, no, not the Attack of the Clones or that Jar Jar Binks thing. You know, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Willa's favorite Star Wars movie so far has been... Star Wars! Star Wars. I think she really liked Return of the Jedi better, but she's saying Star Wars. Willa's mother thought that Empire Strikes Back was boring. Truth be told, it was pretty slow in parts. Willa's father, that's me, was very disturbed to see the CGI additions in these movies, including Anakin Skywalker, a young actor named Glar Blar Blur Blah Blur Strong, show up at the end of Return of the Jedi. What? All we really wanted to see was Darth Vader without his helmet on. Next thing we want to watch is Spaceballs. No, Clone Wars. No, the one with Kylo Ren. No. Willa's mother is not happy with Han Solo's behavior. He's kind of a male chauvinist pig, you might say. Also very not nice to Princess Leia. Also not very attractive in terms of his treatment of women. No, no. Han Solo is definitely a Me Too candidate. We shall see. In any case, Kylo Ren takes care of him in a future movie, I'm told. Thank you very much for listening. I love and appreciate you. I encourage you to donate to this Patreon podcast and go buy Willa's father's books. As much protein as an egg is available in print on Amazon.com. It is not available as an ebook. The reason why is because I'm lazy and it hasn't happened. So, apologies about that. Enjoy, and I will see you soon for the next episode. I hope you have a great June. <sighs> and let's just keep breathing, everybody. And good night. And good night. Breathe in, breathe out. Put your feet flat on the floor. Oh, boy. Okay, take care. This is your homie and his daughter saying keep it locked, stay rhythmic, listen to Black Thoughts. There's a guy named Black Thought. He's from The Roots. Go on YouTube and look up Black Thought Freestyle. Watch the freestyle that he did on Funk Master Flex in 2017. It's the greatest thing ever. And did you know that Rock Kim wrote a book that came out last year? He did. I haven't read it yet. But go get it and watch that Michael Jordan documentary and then email in your questions about the Maltese Jordans and where that all fits in. Seth Strong, I'm talking to you. David Dezwirek, thanks for writing. Love that piece about the Jordans in Israel and... That pair of Jordan 1s, signed and game-worn, that went for 
$160,000. No, $460,000. The Maltese Jordans, soon to be non-fiction aisles, soon to be in non-fiction aisles near you. This is a presentation from your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right. S-E-T-H-H-A-R-W-O-O-D Coming to you here from Massachusetts, East Hampton During the Corona COVID 2020 That's right, your boy Kicking it to you live and direct Fresh off the mic SethHarwood.com Patreon.com Slash Seth Harwood Patreon All the places Check it out Keep it locked.